0: Hello and welcome to episode
1: 112 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Tony Rose, Deanna and she, they pronouns, a community engagement manager at MCP, and I am joined by former high school math teacher and instructional coach and current director of a blended learning project in Haiti, April Williamson. Welcome, April.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, it's so exciting to be in this space with you. And thank you so much for saying yes to the podcast. Uh, before we get started, tell me something good right now.
2: Ooh, something good right now. Um, beautiful fall weather in Washington, D.C., where I live. Um, yeah, I love the changing seasons. The, the trees are really nice. I got out on my bike um, this weekend and played some soccer. So it was really nice to, to be outside enjoying the weather.
1: I am enjoying the colors just turning, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's so beautiful out here. Um, I'm in Washington State, so we we definitely have all four seasons.
2: (laughs) I love it when the trees get super red. You know how like some of the trees will be like more of a burnt orange color, but then some will be that really bright red. I think that's the most beautiful thing.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So um, the universe is just beautiful. And so thank you for sharing that. Tell us more about who you are and how you started your modern classroom journey.
2: Yeah, I've had a a pretty meandering trajectory to get to modern classrooms and to get to the place I am in my career, but definitely grateful for all of my varied experiences. Um, So right out of undergrad, I spent um, almost a year working Through AmeriCorps in a public middle school in Madison, Wisconsin, I was doing um, kind of extracurricular programs and some tutoring programs, and I really enjoyed that experience. So that kind of planted the seed in my mind, I think, that later led me to become a teacher. Um, Right after AmeriCorps, I moved to Senegal with the Peace Corps, spent two years working with schools and health centers in a remote um, area of Senegal, doing environmental health education projects. And then I returned to the States, um, went and did a two-year master's program in global affairs. And after my master's degree, moved down to Washington, D.C. to work in international development. Um, I've been in D.C. for almost a decade now. So after a few years of working in development in D.C., I was kind of craving a deeper connection to the city and to the Um, to the people here. And I wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to also see the impact of my work on individual people on a daily basis. So I thought about it for about a year and then was like, you know what, I think this is the time to start teaching. It had been something that had been on the back of my mind for many years. And I was like, just jump in and do it. So I did an eight week training with the DC Teaching Fellows Program, and then immediately started teaching high school algebra in DCPS, which was quite an adventure. Um, I ultimately spent six years as a math teacher and then later as an instructional coach at two different schools in Washington, DC. The second school I worked at was Washington Leadership Academy, which is a computer science focused charter school with a one-to-one technology program. Um, and so that's where I came across the modern classrooms project. One of my colleagues at WA organized a group of us teachers from different content areas to do the summer fellowship a couple years ago. And it was just by far the most useful training I ever did as a teacher, and I was an immediate convert to the model. So I started implementing the Modern Classrooms model in my own classroom for the last two school years at WLA. And then because I was also an instructional coach, I had the algebra and geometry teams that I was coaching um, use the model Um, I also have been working as a Modern Classrooms mentor for about a year and a half, um, and it's been really, really fun to have the opportunity to support teachers and administrators from around the country to implement the model. So um, just in June, I decided to leave the classroom, and I recently moved over to Digital Promise, where I'm now directing a blended learning project, working with schools in rural and remote areas of Haiti. And so that project focuses on infrastructure and tech distribution, um, developing digital content in Haitian Creole, and also also providing professional development to teachers and coaches. And it's been a really interesting kind of nexus of my past experiences. It's been really fascinating to think through how blended learning could be adapted to a really different context from the ones I'm familiar with in the States. Um, and, you know, now I'm working in a setting where most of the schools don't even have electricity or Internet, much less one-to-one technology. Um, so I think it's going to be a really good challenge to figure out what blended learning can look like in Haiti and how technology can really support students to to learn in an active and engaging way.
1: Wow. That journey just sounds so fascinating, April. Um and yeah, I would love to have an update on how that goes as far as trying to figure out what blended learning looks like for a school or a school district where there's not a lot of like, you know, there's no electricity, like you said, no internet, uh, one-to-one, all of that. So I'm, I'm really interested in the updates that you'll tell me about yes. how this is going. <laughs> we'll definitely keep you updated. Um, I, I have a follow up question. So you said that um, you did the DC teaching fellows, and you ended up teaching high school algebra. Is that something that you chose? Or was that something that was chosen for you?
2: It is something that I chose. Um, high school or secondary math was something that I was interested in. I was open to middle school as well, middle school or high school math. Um, which is funny because my undergraduate degree was in art, French, and African studies. <laughs> and, and like I said, my master's was in uh, global affairs. So it doesn't really make that much sense from um, an external perspective. But I had, as a grad student, um, TA'd a statistics and calculus class, and I really enjoyed that. Um, and a lot of my work um, in my master's program was doing quantitative analysis and I just always really loved teaching people math. Like it's a subject that always kind of came naturally naturally to me, and that I really enjoyed. Um, and I also think it's a subject where girls aren't always encouraged or supported to thrive. And so I think I felt kind of an emotional connection to um, to teaching math in a way that students really enjoyed, you know, taking some of the stigma away from math. When you say you're a math teacher, people are often like, oh, I hated math. Oh, that's the worst subject. And that really breaks my heart because math is such an incredible subject. It has just like infinite applications to the real world. Um, and so, yeah, I think I felt really motivated by the the challenge of making it a subject that that students could love. And then in terms of age group, I don't know, I really like working with high schoolers because they are kind of mini adults in some ways, you know, they don't always act like adults. Often they act like kids, but it's like, you can have real conversations with them. Like some of my students would blow me away with, you know, the thoughts that they would have and, um, the ways that they would perceive the world. Um, and I really enjoyed being able to connect with my students on that level. So that's what I really loved about teaching high school.
1: I mean, I feel called out because I am definitely that person that's like, oh, math was the worst for me.
2: (laughs) It's so sad. It just means that maybe you weren't taught it in in the right way. And I feel like that can travel through like generations, too. It's like if students are getting this message from a young age that math isn't fun, math is something to fear, then of course, you know, they're going to experience that and then they might transmit that message to, to their own children. So I hope we can break that cycle <laughs> of hating math soon.
1: Yeah, definitely. I I know I may have something probably to do with the whole societal expectations of Asians being good at math, you know? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I just really wanted to deviate from that. Like all of my siblings are amazing at numbers and I just like Decided to hate numbers.
2: <laughs> so, That's so interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes and, it, it does take all sorts in this world. So you know, you can love what you love, but you don't have mm-hmm. to hate math in the process. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I understand the importance of math and numbers and all of that. And so I think um, kudos to you because I also would not teach high school students, although I have before. Uh, it's not my cup of tea. (laughs) So, um, okay. So I know that we're talking about adult collaboration for this episode, but I really wanted to highlight your classroom specifically. So I've always heard great things about you from Debbie, who is our director of virtual mentorship here at Modern Classroom. And I was so excited to be able to witness your magic in person. So you were so intentional with how you had students collaborate. Can you tell us more about your thought process and how you got high school students to collaborate with each other?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for saying that. Um, it was something that I really focused on. So the fact that you were able to see that when you came into my classroom really means a lot. I also want to acknowledge the role that my students played in building that culture of collaboration. Um, I just feel so lucky. My students are amazing. Um And I created systems to support them to collaborate, but they had to be also willing to come on that journey with me, and they were, Um, and so I think that's what allowed us to be successful as a learning community, um, not as like one teacher and a whole bunch of students. Um, So my students really were willing to support each other and hold each other accountable, and they also were vocal with input about how they thought our classes should run, Um, and I think that was really instrumental in building a really good culture, but, you know, with ninth graders, they don't always automatically work together in constructive and productive ways. So there were definitely things that I tried to do with them, um, to make sure that collaboration was happening effectively, um, So one of those things was that I tried to kind of appeal to the better angels of my students' nature and just made encouragement and support and positivity the default in our classroom from day one. Um, I think I know as a learner that it feels good to know that you have the support that you need to master something you're struggling with, and it also inherently feels good to help people. So knowing that, knowing that my students could have these positive associations with collaboration, I just tried to kind of capitalize on that and create opportunities for them to experience those positive feelings early and often. I found, especially with the modern classrooms model, that students might have been a little bit skeptical at first or a little bit resistant But as soon as they could have an early win with the model, they were much more willing to, you know, take the risk to remaster something in the future. So I tried to kind of gently push them outside their comfort zone from the beginning to create this kind of virtuous cycle. I really saw with my students that once they started to see success, it kind of bred more success. As a teacher, I really felt it was important to model the dispositions that I wanted to see in my students. Um, so I tried to always speak in an encouraging manner, um, talk about the value of effort and perseverance. Um, and it's it's not about learning something on a certain time in a certain time frame. It's about ultimately getting there. You know, it doesn't matter if it took you a little bit longer than someone else. Um, I also like to respect my students' autonomy a lot and give them a pretty good amount of freedom to choose who they were collaborating with and when. You know, within reason, there were times when I had to intervene and say, hey, are you too sure you're really the best people to collaborate together because you spent all class yesterday talking about other things? Um, But like I was saying earlier, like one of the joys of working with high schoolers is they really are starting to mature and they can be self-reflective. And if you give them the opportunity to stop and reflect, oftentimes they will, they'll identify for themselves that what they're the choice they're making maybe isn't the best one. Um, I used a lot of routines also to support collaboration. So I was big into daily shout outs, I would name specific collaboration practices that I saw and appreciated in my students and eventually had my students start to name and recognize those practices in each other. And in themselves, I was big on letting people shout themselves out if they felt like they were a great, you know, peer support one day. Like, yeah, let's shout it out. Let's celebrate that. I also had my students practice collaboration in low stakes ways. So we would sometimes start class with just logic puzzles or some team games. And then I talked a lot with my students about the why and how of collaboration to make sure that they understood that what we were doing was grounded in purpose. We weren't just working together to work together we were working together for a reason. We were working together so that, you know, they didn't always have to come to me with a question. And when I was busy, someone else could support them. And we were working together because a really good way to internalize something that we've learned and push our thinking even even further is through teaching other people. So anytime I saw a collaboration practice that wasn't particularly effective in my class, I would try to take that as an opportunity to have a, a teachable moment and kind of pause and reflect with my students about what was going on and and what we could do better um, as a learning community.
1: I think there are some really great takeaways from what you just said, April, especially with students having the the autonomy to make those decisions, right? Even though, uh, well, they are high school students, so they're a little bit older, but this goes along really well with elementary and middle school learners as well, which I think is really important for our listeners to, to hear. And I also just love the fact that you focused on creating that culture and connecting with your students as well as students connecting with each other, right? Because ultimately that's how collaboration is going to work when students and the educators are trusted um, or trustworthy in the classroom, then students are more than willing to share and advocate um, for themselves as well as really just help each other out. So I I love that. And so when you talked about early wins, can you give us an example?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think like an example of that would be, you know, you're rolling out your first modern classrooms unit and it's past the soft deadline for lesson one. Maybe it's even past the soft deadline for lesson two. So say say on pace is lesson three and you have a student who's still on lesson one. Maybe they were absent or maybe they're just struggling with the content of lesson one, and maybe they're starting to feel kind of defeated, they see on the tracker that they're off pace and that their peers are moving ahead. Um, I tried to, I don't want to say forced, because you know, you can't force someone to do anything. But to the extent that I could, it was basically just like, no, you're not going to allow yourself to fail. Like at that point in time when sometimes you'll you'll sense that a student's about to shut down or give up and they'll be like, I can't do this. This is too hard. I'm too far behind. I would, you know, sit down with that that student one-on-one and be like, we are getting through this lesson. Like you are going to understand this and you're going to demonstrate your mastery. Um, and, and like, I'm not going to let you fail. Um, I think- when a student really knows that, like knows that their teacher is there and is not going to let them fail or that, you know, their peers are there to support them and their peers aren't going to let them fail. Like that can be a really powerful feeling because oftentimes students have been, you know, left behind or left to fail maybe in past educational experiences. So I think it's just really powerful to see the look on a student's face when they have been really struggling with a lesson and then they ultimately get it. And it's like, it, they don't. They didn't get it because I was sitting next to them. Like they actually really understood it, and they genuinely were able to demonstrate that they understood it. And like that feeling of overcoming a big challenge, I think, is a really powerful feeling. And so I think once students started to have those experiences of like, oh, I was close to giving up. I was close to just saying, you know what, I'm not going to do all these lessons, and I'll take the F. But I didn't, and now I saw that I could be successful. Like that really was a driving force, I think, in terms of motivation.
1: Yeah, and I completely agree with you on that too, right? Um, As an educator, it's really good for us to catch right away who's following. "Quote unquote," falling behind, um, just so that it's not like what ten lessons later and they're still in lesson one, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because that is really. I mean, as an adult, I feel like I would also feel defeated and just have a low motivation at that point of getting anything done because I'm already so behind. Um, I also really like that you, you know, you asked your students, you know, are you sure that that's the best idea? <laughs> <Or> that this <laughs> yes. is the best partner to collaborate with, you know, and you're not going in there assuming or, you know, kind of attacking or reprimanding them and saying like, no, you all, you know, didn't do what you're supposed to do yesterday. So you can't work together. But it was more so like, are you sure? Let's take some time to reflect.
2: (laughs) Yes. It's like you have to give students that opportunity to surprise you in a positive way because they will like they inevitably will, you know, surpass your expectations when when given that opportunity to rise to the occasion.
1: Yeah. And you had a really good point with the why and the how of collaboration as well, right? This is something that I tell educators all the time is that our students are always going to ask why, why are we learning this? Why are we doing it this way? Why, you know, why, why, why? Always why. Um, and so just having that conversation with the students already of just like, here's a why and here's how to do it so that you feel successful and you're not set up to fail. And I think that that's really great. Um, and as an educator, you know, like yourself, you were just talking about how you just modeled all of these expectations. And I think that that's also just as powerful. Um, Okay. I know that it was pretty challenging transition for me going from full-time classroom teacher to full-time instructional coach, essentially going from working with students all day to adults all day. April, we are something else. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What did collaboration look like with the educators that you worked with? Oh, yeah. It
2: was, um, it was definitely a transition, although I do feel lucky in that I was doing like 50% teaching and 50% of my time as an instructional coach. So I still did get to maintain, um, that one foot inside the classroom. And I think that was really helpful for my coaching. Um, it allowed me to continue trying new things, you know, pushing my own teaching practice, discovering new tools or techniques that I could then share with the teachers I coached. Um, I think it also allowed me to ground my mentorship or my coaching in my own personal experience. Um, and I think it can be really hard as teachers sometimes when we feel like we have this intractable problem in our classroom and we haven't been able to find a solution and we go to someone and they give us some solution that just doesn't feel realistic for whatever reason. It's like I- this just, I don't think it's going to work. And then you just kind of feel like that person like missed the mark. Like they don't really understand the, the challenges I'm facing because they're not experiencing the same thing I'm experiencing. So I do feel like it sort of lent some credibility, I guess, maybe to my coaching relationships to, to still be able to teach and to be able to say like, hey, maybe this won't work in your classroom, but like, here's something that I tried that worked for me and it might work for you as well. I just think a lot about those like conferences or professional development sessions that people sometimes attend and you see all these cool technologies or programs and you're like, yeah, great. But when you say to a teacher, hey, there's this great program that I discovered at a a conference, it's a lot less powerful than saying, here's a game that I tried with my students. And I noticed that it really helped with, you know, the student engagement challenges that I was facing. Um, but yeah, in terms of my approach to coaching, I think I tried to be pretty hands-on. Um, I would often go into the classrooms of the teachers I was working with and just work alongside them. So I would, you know, pull a small group of students to help them remaster a lesson, or I would have a one-on-one conversation with a student who tried, seemed to be maybe a little bit down or checked out. Um, and I think that gave me a deeper insight into the real dynamics of the classroom um, and really understand what might be helping some students to experience more success or what might be holding some other students back from success. And then I could take that insight into our coaching meetings. So often our coaching meetings looked kind of like brainstorming sessions. Um, We would just talk through challenges, um, discuss different options, co-develop a strategy to try based on our shared understanding of their classroom and the particular students in their classroom. I also always tried when I was having coaching meetings to just ask what would be most helpful for the teachers I was working with to get from me. I knew from personal experience that sometimes as a teacher, you're just overwhelmed and you, it might sound silly, but maybe you just need someone to run some copies for you, or maybe you just need someone else to try talking to a student who you're you know, maybe not having the best relationship with Um, and feeling like you're not alone is really valuable as an educator. So I wanted the teachers I worked with to know that they could ask for what they needed without fear or embarrassment, without feeling like I'm a failure because, you know, I've tried 10 different things to, to reach this student and none of them have worked. I think one of the most surprising things about me when I switched careers to become a teacher was just how isolating it could sometimes feel. It's like you're in this, you're around people constantly. In fact, you never have a moment to yourself, but like you can still feel mentally and emotionally isolated being the sole adult in a classroom of 25 students. And so... As a, as a coach, I knew that I never wanted my teachers to feel alone. I wanted them to know that they had me on their side and they had the other members of our content team also on their side. And together we would be there to help them um, overcome whatever challenges came up. And I did try really hard to create that dynamic of collaboration within our content teams. I tried to build this shared mentality that we were working together as a group to ensure that all students were successful in their math classes. It wasn't about me and the students that I was working with versus this other teacher and the students that they were working with versus this third teacher and their students. It was like success was a shared thing and challenges were a shared thing. Um, I think a really harmful dynamic that exists in some schools is this dynamic of competition between teachers. Like, this is the best teacher, or this teacher is really struggling. Um, And that doesn't serve kids, you know, if if one teacher is doing great things, and another teacher is struggling, then we collectively as a community of educators need to figure out how to ensure that all students are successful in all of their classrooms. Um, And so I, tried to the extent that I could um, to create a culture where we weren't embarrassed about admitting that things were going wrong. And we were all collectively taking that responsibility over both the challenges and the the celebrations, um, regardless of which classroom they happened in. On a more practical side, I tried to use certain tools or processes to facilitate collaborative planning for each unit. And I think this is huge with modern classrooms. I would recommend any Modern Classrooms educators who have other teachers at their school who are doing the model to try to um, plan collaboratively if possible, just because it saves so much time. Um, So I developed some systems for delegating responsibilities and making sure that we were following through on our deadlines and commitments to each other. So um, before a unit, we would try to split up the planning in an equitable way to make all of our lives easier. Um, as you know, it takes a ton of work to plan a modern classrooms unit on your own. And so being able to do it with others was so much more efficient. So I'll just take the algebra team that I worked with as an example, because I was still teaching algebra at the time. So if we had a unit that had six lessons and a project and a quiz to plan, and we had four people on the team, we would just each be responsible for two of those items. And so I would create a shared unit plan and using Google Docs, And I would also create a blank notes template before each unit. And then I would just tag people in the documents to remind them of what parts they were responsible for. We also had a shared color-coded calendar. So that allowed us to keep track of upcoming things like assessment dates and shift the calendar as things changed with, you know, snow days or unexpected school closures. Um, I also had a color-coded data tracker for our team um, so all of those kind of processes allowed us to stay accountable to each other. And then sometimes with the people I coached, I just tried to do things just to be helpful. Um, so, for example, with this algebra team, I would just volunteer to run all the copies of the notes packets for each unit and then would just drop them off in the teacher's classrooms just to take a little bit of the load off their plates Um And as a coach, I tried to do that whenever possible, whenever I just saw a small opportunity to just help someone else out, knowing that as a teacher, you have always 20 more things on your plate than you have time to do. Um, So I saw that as kind of a valuable component of my role as an instructional coach was just kind of that that support.
1: Yeah, these are all great things that um, you shared with us, April. I mean, definitely the 50 50 role was useful because I remember at DCI when I was a teacher there, I was also the subject coordinator for English. And so I was able to go in and really support my team in ways that um, teachers couldn't really if. They were just teaching the entire time, right? So I was able to see and witness all the magic that was happening in the English department. And something that I wanted to prioritize was my English teachers really checking each other out because um, I could talk all day at you about all the cool things. But when you're in that person's classroom, it just feels different right? It feels different to witness the magic that someone else is creating. And, and so as a subject coordinator, I created a a schedule, I covered the classes for 15 minutes and, and really encouraged the other English teachers to pop into other English teachers classrooms. And they just like loved it. It was it it it, it, evo- it evoked a lot of great discussions about like what was your biggest takeaway with something that you could implement in your classroom. Um, and it was like just the best professional development learning and and they were collaborating without even really knowing it, right? And so I think, again, being really intentional with how we share our responsibilities. I know that I worked with three other English teachers and we really did divide up everything just so that, you know, we had a work-life balance because that's something that we struggle with as educators. And also another thing too, is that we really looked at our strengths and weaknesses as a team. And so like, uh, one of my uh, or one of my English teachers uh, was a writer. and so with the writing units we always just kind of um, went to her about like planning it out and you know figuring out what the process is going to look like for students and, and so we really played on each other's strengths and weaknesses and and I really, Really enjoyed that part about collaboration. And so, you know, I was recently at a school district and I saw that a couple of teachers who teach the same grade, same content, um, they were trying to implement the model um, by themselves. And like you said, it's very isolating, which is so true. Teaching is pretty isolating. We have to be, again, super intentional with like reaching out to people and creating community so it doesn't seem so isolating. And I was just thinking in my head, like, oh my gosh, like, can't you like I just feel like in my head you could just save so much time collaborating with other people Um, because you know you teach the same content you teach the same grade and I think having more uh, having more than one head is much better than just like being by yourself right And so you get to have all these cool ideas and really become a thought partner for other people and I think that's always what I push for is that um, I'm a thought partner. Like, let's talk about it. Let's brainstorm all the ideas. Let's talk about all the challenges and and the wins and all of that good stuff. And and something too that resonated with me that just like I just had a quick like flashback um, when you said the competition that happens in schools, right? I definitely was that teacher, April, that was like, well, that my students don't act like that in my classes, you know? And and that's not really that's not great. Um, And so when you'd voice that, I've never actually like thought about that. But I, you know, in my head, I was so proud, you know, like, oh, my students don't act like that in my classes. And it's like, okay, but how are you helping others? <laughs> um So thank you for that. And just, you know, being able to create a space where there's no shame. If something is not working, if you're having, you know, struggles and challenges and implementing the model really, or just with anything with teaching, there should be no shame with asking for help.
2: Mm -hmm. And shame is such a powerful feeling. Like, I remember when I started teaching, like I had just these unreasonable expectations of myself, like I was striving for perfection. And first of all, you as a teacher, you just have to let go of that, like you're working with humans, and not just humans, like children, like developing humans, of course, your classroom is not gonna look like this idealized vision that you have all day, every day. But I think I just felt so much shame at the beginning around admitting that, like admitting that I couldn't control it all and I couldn't make my classroom look exactly how I wanted it to look and I couldn't make my students act a certain way. Um, and I think getting over that was really critical in terms of my my growth as an educator. Um, but one other thing that you that you talked about that I you know hadn't brought up, but that I, loved was the power of observation like I feel like I've learned the most as an educator just by watching people who do things differently or are better at things than me Um, that's like personally my favorite way to learn and so I love that you set up that system for your teachers to be able to see other people because with our schedules it's hard it's hard to find time in the day to go into other people's classes and I think that is one of the best ways to learn.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I definitely had to push for my team to go, right? Like I looked at all their, like logistically it was a nightmare and I had to figure it out on my own, but. At the same time, it was a priority because I was seeing really great things that I was bringing back in my classes that I wanted everyone else to see. And so I looked at everyone's schedule. I looked at my own schedule so that I can pop in for those 15 minutes and cover their classes so they can just go and check out each other's classes. And again, like it's not one of those things where um, I, I just asked them, like, hey, do you want to go and observe? And they were all pretty like excited about it. And then I was like, OK, well, you decide when you're going to do that. And it didn't happen. (laughs) So for me, as like the subject coordinator, I realized that I have to make those decisions because again, as teachers, we make 20 million thousand (laughs) decisions Mm -hmm. a day, right? Like there's so many decisions that to have one more added on your plate wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna help. And so I really had to make that decision for them and I created a schedule. And the only really thing that was required was for them to watch just one other English teacher. And my team ended up watching and observing all of the English teachers because they were just so excited about it. And they just asked me like, hey, can you cover my class? And I'm like, yeah, I can, because this is really important stuff. Um, And I know even in our community now, April, you know, a a modern classroom is really difficult to catch on video. Um, And so I'm trying to figure out in my head how we could have like teacher observations just so that people can see how a modern classroom runs. <laughs> I'm still trying to play around with how that's supposed to look, but um So yeah, these are just great conversations and great talking points as well. And so, so April, how do you ensure that educators feel heard and valued and that there is meaningful collaboration rather than mandated collaboration? Because I remember as an educator, I just hated this like mandated collaborative tasks that I had to do because it just didn't make any sense. So how did you, how did you get educators to know that like the collaboration that's happening is meaningful and not just mandated?
2: Yeah, I think this is such an important question because as educators, you're sometimes put through the ringer with professional development that doesn't feel meaningful or connected to your practice. And it's just like the most frustrating thing when you have your to-do list that you would much rather be attending to. Something that's funny is like working with students, I realized very quickly that they could kind of sniff out anything that was forced or inauthentic. Um, And I think it's the same way with with teachers, like teachers don't have a stomach for anything that feels forced or fake or mandated. Um, So I tried to ensure that the time that we were spending collaboratively was valuable. And I asked for feedback on that. I would just talk to the other people um, on the team, like, hey, what would be most useful for us to do together? And sometimes it was like, hey, let's order some food and eat together and like take a load off and enjoy each other's company for an hour. And if that was what we needed, then that's what we needed. Um, So I think having that, that kind of two-way communication, um, because it was like our shared time. It wasn't my time to help them. And I think it's important to remember that what teachers want more than anything is really just the time and support to do their jobs. Well, like as we get into teaching, because we want to do it well, we want to be good educators. We want to do that for our students. So anything that we could do together that supported teachers in doing that, I think felt meaningful to them. And like I was saying earlier, I did always try to be reflective and kind of come back to my own experience as a teacher. So one of the things that I reflected on um, when I was switching over to do part time instructional coaching was that it was often easier for me as a teacher to focus on the negatives than to see the positives in what I was doing. And I did not feel like that was healthy or constructive um, so reflecting on that experience, I tried to m- put in place structures in our content and coaching meetings that allowed teachers to pause and find that positive nugget in in their day or in their week. You know, even in the hardest weeks that you have as an educator, there's going to be a ton of things that you do well and a ton of things that you provide to your students that maybe someone else couldn't have because you're a unique individual, Um, so, you know, taking the time to pause and reflect, I think was a really important routine that we had. Um, but you know, there were challenges in, uh, my school that I was working at most recently that you visited. You probably noticed that it's not like a traditional school building. And so there wasn't a lot of space, um, quiet space to collaborate And it was hard sometimes to be present in those conversations when there were a lot of other things going on around us. So for example, we would meet in the cafeteria and sometimes there would be students who wandered into the cafeteria and weren't supposed to be there. And it was always that question of like, do I see something, say something? Like, do I intervene and send the student back to class, which might derail this really valuable conversation that we're having? Or do I just put my head down and continue having this conversation with my my colleague? Um, And it was hard to know, you know, what the right approach was. So yeah, definitely didn't figure out, you know, the most perfect systems or the most perfect ways to collaborate. But um, I think, the biggest one was just trying to be helpful, like trying to figure out what people genuinely needed from me or needed from our collaborative relationship needed from the time that we were spending together, and then figuring out ways to to do that helpful thing. And being able to say like, no to some of the other stuff. Um, I'm kind of a rule follower by nature. And so it's hard for me to say no, like if, if, Someone above me says, hey, I need you to collect all these data and I need you to do X, Y, Z with your teachers. It was hard for me sometimes to be like, hey, I actually don't think that that's the most valuable thing and we're actually going to use our time slightly differently. Um, But I think it was important sometimes to be willing to... um, you know, take our take our collaborative time in a slightly different direction than what was being mandated of us. And I just had to remember that, like, ultimately, it's about the students. And the more that I can do to genuinely support teachers, the happier they will be, the happier their students will be, the better, you know, educational experience their students will have. So it's it's not really about, like, me and being good at my job from an outsider's perspective or from an administrator's perspective. It's about me really helping the teacher who I'm there to help.
1: I mean, like you said it, right? Teachers are overwhelmed. Um, I mean, that's just, the nature of it, unfortunately. And so, you know, when you mentioned realistic solutions to some challenges that educators have, it's really important to listen to our educators and then provide that space to create solutions and also time to create those solutions. Um, I know something that huge that I've learned from modern classroom and really being an instructional coach was that if we're trying to implement something new, if we want our educators to implement something new, we have to give them that time and support to be able to implement it the best way possible. Because again, it's not one of those things where we're like, okay, here's this big new thing, have fun, and then like trust your teachers to do it. Like we- we are just like our students. We need the guidance. We need the support and we need the time to actually do what it is that the schools are asking us to do. Right. And so I think that that's really important to keep in mind as well as like, okay, what is, what is the most effective way right now? What is the most relevant to our educators? And if we do want them to implement something, how are we creating those guidelines to support and providing them time to really do this? Because, again, like we're tired. <laughs> we're overwhelmed. And um, if you want us to do something, like provide us that time and space to do it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's plenty of like PDs that I've gone to where it's like I've seen things that theoretically could be useful for my classroom, but I just have this like gut level reaction where I'm like, I'm not doing this. It's like I'm at capacity. Not not happening. Like, no, I can't even think about how this might look in my classroom like I'm not even there mentally right
1: now. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, even like being completely honest, too, is like, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to sit here and pretend that I'm listening, but I know that this is an initiative that's not going to be brought up ever again. So I'm not even going to do it. And so it's like one of those things where it's like, okay, so now like, because I was that teacher, um, definitely just having those conversations, definitely continuing to check in with teachers and again, providing those supports so that they can implement something that the school is mandating for them to complete or implement in their classrooms. Right. And so, and then also providing that space to talk about it. (laughs) have conversations about how this could look in your classroom and not just being talked at the entire time. So um, great. Okay. So listeners, we're going to take a quick break for announcements and when we come back. We'll talk a little bit more about adult collaboration with April. Hey everyone, here are more weekly announcements. If you want to continue learning with us, check out the webinars that we offer for free at modernclassrooms.org webinars. We also have our Twitter chat on the first Wednesday of each month at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And next week, we'll be talking about experiential learning. Follow us at Modern Class Praj. Hope you all can join us. All right. And so now we're back with April. So April, with this new model of blended learning, self-paced structure and mastery-based learning, how did you support educators who are either hesitant or excited about the MCP model?
2: Great question. Um, I think more of my, the teachers I worked with were excited. And so I think that's a much easier question to answer because when someone's enthusiastic about something new, it's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's try this thing, like jump in. Um, but I definitely had um, a couple that were more hesitant. And I think that is definitely the bigger challenge. Um, so two years ago, I decided that I wanted to use the model with our algebra team. Um, and one thing that I did that I think was helpful was I planned out the entire first unit as an example. And I think that was helpful for a couple reasons. One, like we were talking about earlier, the teachers could see what it l- would look like in practice. So it wasn't just this theoretical model. It was like, oh, here's what lesson one could look like. Here's an extension activity. You know, here's how we um, use lesson classifications. Like all of that was right there and they could see it concretely. Um, but more importantly, I think I took some of that beginning of the year planning stress off the teachers' plates so that they actually did have that time and mental space to just absorb the model and think about what it could look like in their classroom before they were being required to jump into the planning. Um, and I I just know, you know, from experience that it's a lot easier to be open to a new approach when you see how you can use it, like you see a direct application in your classroom and you also feel like you have the capacity to try it So, yeah, I think that was one of the most valuable things that I I did. Um, I didn't want the teachers that I was working with to feel like they were already at their limit on day one of the school year and that I was adding something additional. I wanted them to see that this wasn't necessarily like a harder or more intensive way of working. It was just a different way of working that sure involves maybe some extra work on the front end, but they could actually see the benefits of the model on the back end in terms of the the day-to-day burden of planning as well. Um, so once we did that first unit together, um, Like the teachers on that team were like totally on board. They were like, this is amazing. Like the units planned out. I'm not spending, you know, every night and every morning scrambling to figure out what my the next day in my class is going to look like. Um, So, yeah, definitely like helping people to see how something can work for them and can ultimately benefit for them, I think, is huge in terms of um, getting people on board who might be initially hesitant.
1: Yeah. And you definitely gave that support, right? You like really thought about like, what would be the most useful thing for our educators right now? And how can I alleviate stress and not add on stress, so um I appreciate you sharing that and so, for school leaders out here who are struggling with getting educators to collaborate, what are one to two tips or strategies that you can give them? and I know throughout the recording we've been talking about some strategies, um but specifically for school leaders, what would you what would you say?
2: Yeah, I think you know I think the two things I would say kind of come back to some themes that we've touched on, but I definitely want to underline it. I think. When people are hesitant to collaborate, there's a reason behind it. It's it's the same with our students. It's like when you see a behavior, like what's the why behind it? Um, and so, same with adults, like try to understand the root of people's hesitancy by asking them, and then working with them to address their specific concern. Um, so I think that there are some reasons, some very valid reasons that people might be, you know, hesitant to collaborate. Like maybe they have always been that person in their life who on group projects got stuck doing 95% of the work and they don't want that to be their life anymore. Maybe they're really comfortable in the planning routines and systems that they've set for themselves. And they're concerned about this collaboration time, like interrupting their flow or wasting their time, or maybe they're really intimidated. Like maybe they're, um, new teacher, and they're really intimidated by um, working with other more experienced teachers, or maybe they feel like they're in some unique position with their group of students and the things that help other people aren't necessarily going to work for them. So I think having that conversation, asking and like unpacking um, why that is, and then making sure that you're addressing their concerns and you're setting up your collaborative practices in a way that make give people what they actually need is important and then the second thing I would say and you actually brought this up earlier and I think it's so important is playing to people's strengths and allowing the adults you're working with to give input into what what piece of the puzzle they take responsibility for um so when we were diving divvying up the the unit plans like I was talking about earlier we would I would let people say what they wanted to do and I would always be kind of the last person to take responsibility for a piece of the puzzle because I thought it was important for people to be able to say, like, hey, I really love, I don't know, graphing lines. Like, this is some content that I'm really excited about. Like, I want to plan that lesson. Or alternatively, sometimes people would say, hey, like, I'm not as comfortable creating projects um, with project-based learning, and, like, I want to take on that piece this time because it's an area that I want to grow in. Um, And I think when you give people you know, that autonomy to say what is going to be most valuable to them. I think they're much more likely to, to do a good job and to really invest in the process.
1: And those are two great reminders. I love that. So April, what do you hope to see in the future and what goals do you have? Oh, wow. I mean, so
2: many things. Um, so, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that I'm doing a project, a blended learning project in Haiti um, right now. And so I think I'm really excited about the possibilities with technology in Haiti um, and the opportunity to build resiliency within their education system. Um, you know, Haiti's been through so many crises in recent years, and it's often resulted in students being out of school, you know, school getting shut down. Um and so now with the current economic and political crisis, we're seeing it again, the countries in lockdown and schools aren't opening. And every time that these you know, ruptures happen, the gap widens between students who have access to Internet and have access to learning technologies and those who don't. Um, So I think I'm really excited about the opportunity to try to be part of the solution there and ensure that all students have access to learning um, and like high quality learning, engaging learning, active learning. Um, And then everywhere, I would hope to see schools where students have a love of learning. I think as humans, we're so naturally curious, like we want to learn, we want to figure things out. And it's sometimes sad to me to realize how our traditional educational models have squashed that natural curiosity and that natural thirst for knowledge in so many students. So in terms of like a large scale shift in in education, I would love to see schools where students are laughing and, you know, squealing with joy and, and just like loving the experience of being, being with their peers and learning together and being with their teachers and learning together. That's, that's the vision that I have for our future.
1: And I just had the best vision in my head of you talking about students, you know, squealing with joy. I, I like visited a kindergarten uh, classroom and they were just so excited, you know, so excited to be there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how can we emulate that in in secondary schools? Because I think again, like you said, the traditional way has just really squashed our love of learning and because of like compliance or whatever other things. And so I really, really love that vision, April. Thank you for sharing. And so how can our listeners connect with you?
2: Yeah, I would love to connect with the listeners. I am pretty old school. So all of my social media is private, but I am on LinkedIn. (laughs) Um, So yeah, if people search me on LinkedIn, I think it's like linkedin.com slash april-m-williamson, or you can just look for April Williamson associated with Modern Classrooms and, and find me there. And I would love to,
1: to chat with people. Yes, because I can't be the only person learning from you, April. I feel like I have to share you with everyone else. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So
1: sweet. Um, well, thank you so much, April. I love, love, love learning from your expertise and perspective. I feel like every time I'm in the same space as you, I just become a much better person. So thank you for that. Well,
2: the same goes for you.
1: (laughs) Listeners, remember you can always email us at podcast at modernclassrooms.org. And you can find the show notes for this episode at podcast at modernclassrooms.org slash one twelve. We'll have this episode's recap and transcript uploaded to the modern classrooms blog on Friday. So be sure to check there or check back in the show notes for this episode if you'd like to access those. Thank you all for listening. Have a great week and we'll be back next Sunday. Thank
0: you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org And you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Praj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students and schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast.